Good morning, everyone. My name, if you are new here today, my name is Jake Clausen, and I am the senior pastor of this church. And on behalf of the elders and myself, we're glad that you come and join us on Sunday mornings to worship God and to hear from him and to hear about him through his word. Because you see, there is nothing, there is nothing we can offer you except Jesus Christ. To offer you anything else except Jesus Christ would be a devastating thing to do because it would not be true. And so we commit ourselves to providing the opportunity to worship the Lord and to give you the Lord through his word. And so we want to give you Jesus because that is all we have to give. And so our hope and our desire is that when you leave here on a Sunday morning, that you will find yourself irresistibly drawn to Jesus. Now, we started preaching through the gospel of Mark uh, almost a year ago. Next month will be a year. And every story throughout the gospel of Mark highlights for us who Jesus is, what he is like. And we know that he is the visible image of the invisible God. And the other thing it does for us, it highlights to us our need for him. And the big question that jumps out of the gospel of Mark, and we heard it again last week when Ken was preaching, a question that we have to answer is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Or perhaps for us, the more appropriate question would be, do you believe who Jesus is? And do you trust him? And today we want to see, again, what we learn about Jesus in a way and how he responds to three different situations. So if you have your Bible with you or if you want to turn it on, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to start at verse 11 this morning. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 11. Three different situations that arise, three stories kind of in essence put together as one. And I'm hoping to show you how these tie together at the end. In Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 11, we read this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. That means they were arguing with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat and he went to the other side. Now we're going to pause there. We're going to begin to unpack this here. Let me start by saying this. If you are unfamiliar with the story of Jesus... And what we've seen through the gospel of Mark, you might actually be a little confused as to why when this group known as the Pharisees 
asked Jesus for a sign from heaven that he seemed so exasperated. We see this when Jesus sighed deeply in the spirit. It means that he groaned deeply within himself and said, why does this generation seek a sign? In order to understand this, we need to understand a little more about the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were considered the most elite, if you will, elite religious group in Israel. When you looked at a Pharisee or if you knew of the Pharisees, you always failed in comparison in your own religiousness towards God, in your own faith towards God, at least from an outward perspective. From an outward perspective, they seem to have it all together. Their piety, their religiosity, they were just so put together. And if you were just around them, you'd feel guilty and convicted that I'm nothing like them. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. As much as they were considered the most religious group in Israel, they opposed Jesus' own claims as to who he was. Jesus claimed that he was the son of God. And furthermore, what Jesus had done is he had pointed out that the Pharisees' religion did not actually glorify God. In other words, God was not pleased with their religion or their religiosity. And so what's happened is the Pharisees have now come together to argue with Jesus and to test him. But this testing that they've come to do is not to see, to prove that he is who he says he is. The essence of this testing was actually to try to cause him to fail in order that they could prove from their perspective and to the people that Jesus is not who he claims to be. And the Pharisees believe that they have come up with the perfect plan. And they are convinced that when they present Jesus with this challenge, he's going to fail. They ask him for a sign from heaven. But here's what's interesting. They have already witnessed countless of signs, if you will, or miracles when Jesus healed the sick or gave sight to the blind, or made the lame walk, or gave hearing to the deaf, caused the mute to speak, or when he casts out demons. And the list goes on, how he fed a group of 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and then a little while later, another group of 4,000, very much in the same manner. And here's the thing, the Pharisees can't deny what he's doing. They can't deny that what he's doing isn't supernatural because it is supernatural. And everything he's doing points to the fact that he indeed is the son of God. On the other hand, the Pharisees aren't exactly stupid. They know enough. In fact, they knew the scriptures better than most in Israel. And what's happening is they're thinking back, way back, probably to the days of Moses, the days of Elijah, 
the days of Joshua. And the Pharisees remembered, do you remember in the days of Moses? That when Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood, well, Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to do the same through their witchcraft. When Moses caused frogs to infest Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians, again, were able to replicate that as well. But what they weren't able to do is once the miracles included miracles from the sky or the heavens, they couldn't replicate it. Whether it was the gnats who came out of the sky, whether it was the hail that fell from the sky on command, Pharaoh's magicians couldn't replicate this. You probably also remember the times such as when Elijah called down fire from heaven or when Joshua, holding up his arm, caused the sun to stand still. These were all signs from heaven. And so they've gathered in their little groups. They've thought this through. And now they have a plan to trap Jesus to prove that he is not who he says he is. Show us a sign from heaven, Jesus. Sure, you can heal these people. Sure, you can make bread multiply. Sure, you can make the lame walk, give sight to the blind. But show us a sign from heaven. They think they've got him cornered. But Jesus wasn't having any of it. He responds to them by stating, truly, no sign will be given to this generation. And he walks away. The question is, why did Jesus simply walk away? Here's the opportunity to finally prove that he is who he is. So why does Jesus just walk away? They've asked him for a sign. We've seen him calm the waves and, and, and calm, calm the breeze and, and still the waters, all of these things. Why on earth does Jesus not take the opportunity to do this? And here's what I think. And my thought on this follows a line of men much wiser than myself. The reason I believe that Jesus didn't give them a sign from heaven was because no matter what Jesus did, no matter how many signs he gave them, the Pharisees would never admit to who Jesus was. Simple as that. Had he given them a sign from heaven, they would have found another way to try to prove that he wasn't. So the, the bottom line is this. He had already given a sign. There had already been a sign. Do you remember all the way back in Mark chapter 1 after Jesus went down to the Jordan and was baptized by John the Baptist after Jesus came up out of the water? A dove, it says that the heavens were torn open and a dove came down and landed upon him and a voice spoke out of the clouds saying, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. Is that not sign enough from heaven? So what we see here 
is that Jesus simply didn't give himself to the Pharisees to to debate the reality of who he was, knowing that no matter what he did, they would deny all evidence. So then the question for us is, what do we learn about how Jesus responded here to the Pharisees? I think there's several things. Firstly, I would say this. Jesus didn't feel the need to try to convince them of who he was by giving them more signs. Because you see, they had already witnessed thousands of miracles at the hands of Jesus. And if those weren't enough to convince them, a sign from heaven wouldn't do it either. So what's the takeaway from this for us? I would begin by saying this, that those who refute Jesus as the son of God often claim, if he really is God, then God would do this right now. Then we would see God would do this miracle right now. As a, as a way of saying, if he would do that right now, I would believe But the reality is that's not necessarily true. It's not true. If they will not believe the verified, historical, accurate accounts of Jesus, they most likely will not believe if the Lord gave them a personal sign from heaven. That's the first thing, first takeaway for us. There's a second takeaway for us. And I hope for this to be an encouragement to you. Perhaps you've shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who refuted what you said about Jesus, and you think it's your fault that they won't believe because you weren't convincing enough, or you didn't have enough evidence, or something to that effect. But the reality is, as much as we need to be able to communicate the gospel well and clearly, The reality is, you and I do not possess the ability to convince others to believe. And we will see that later on why. And so it doesn't matter the approach. It doesn't matter how well-versed or spoken you are. That's the first response that we see from Jesus to the Pharisees, but There's a second response I want to look at, and that's Jesus' response to his disciples. So now I want to look at verses 13 through 21, and in the end, this is all going to come back together. So let's first look at verses 13 through 15. And he, that's Jesus, he left them, meaning he walked away from the Pharisees, and he got into the boat. Boy, we've seen Jesus get in the boat again and again, right? Comes to one side, something happens, gets the boat back to the other side. Here it happens again. And they went to the other side. Now it's Jesus and his disciples in the boat. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now when he says Herod there, he's speaking of the Herodians. You see, I believe, I believe Jesus was frustrated. I can't prove that, but that's the summary from which I pull out of this. And don't take that as rock solid 
truth, but that is the sense that I get. Jesus is frustrated with the Pharisees. And he gets back into the boat and he sets off to the other side with his disciples. And the situation with the Pharisees still seems to be lingering on his mind. And, and I don't know if someone pulled out a loaf of bread or if Jesus saw it laying there. I don't know. Either way, Jesus looking at the bread recognizes that this is going to be a teachable moment for his disciples. And he uses the bread as an example. And he tells his disciples to be aware or be mindful of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I think perhaps what Jesus is trying to get across to them, what he's trying to get them to understand is that they're to be careful, be mindful, watch out for the beliefs, the teachings, and the unbelief of the Pharisees because it's like leaven. What is leaven? Well, yeast is a leavening agent. So if you think of yeast, it'll help us kind of put some knowledge around this. And what yeast or what leavening does is that it causes dough to rise by fermentation or really by rotting. So when you enjoy that nice fluffy piece of bread, remember that was the result of decay and fermentation, right? And so that's what's happening here. So Jesus is looking at this bread and he makes this statement. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Although the Pharisees' religiosity and that of the Herodians looks godly on the outside, on the inside, they're actually rotting. Typically, when the Bible speaks of leavening or yeast or anything, products like that, typically, it's spoken of in a negative connotation, not a positive. And so, yes, although the religious or the Pharisees' outward religiosity looks good, on the inside, they're rotting and full of decay. And they're trying to convince others that I, Jesus, am not who I say I am. So don't let them infect you with their unbelief of who I am. Now, look at verse 16. Look at what happens next. And they began discussing with one another, this is the disciples, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? You see, the disciples heard Jesus make this statement, and it seems as though the disciples completely missed the point. They completely miss what Jesus is getting at. It seems as though they're thinking that he was talking about the fact that they had forgotten to bring bread. Now, now keep following the passage here. Let's look at verse 17. Listen to what Jesus now responds to them. Do you not yet understand, perceive, or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? So he's asking these questions. 
and then he walks with them. Listen to this. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Understand what is the question, right? Understand what? And I would encourage you in your small groups or in your families or with your friends to have a fuller discussion around this because I have to narrow my time here. But I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Guys, you think I'm talking about bread, so let me just address that for a moment. Do you not yet understand? Like, look, I am well able to provide bread. You saw that when I fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. I am who I say I am. Don't you understand that? Have these things not taught you and proven to you who I am? This then goes back to the statement that he made. Be careful. Don't be influenced by those who, like the Pharisees, try to convince you that I am not who I am. You see, here's what's interesting. Whereas the Pharisees tried to outright deny who Jesus was, the disciples believed, but strangely didn't seem to quite fully get who Jesus was. They had already proclaimed, hey, you are the Christ. And we'll see that again in the, in the next passage over that we're going to look at next week. And so you're the son of God. You are the Christ. And yet, for whatever reason, in these moments, in these situations, it seems as though they don't yet fully get who he is. Maybe you don't fully understand everything that Jesus is and what he means for you and to you. We are like the disciples in that sense. We believe Jesus. We believe he's real. We believe he's the son of God. We believe that he saves us from our sins and gives us the gift of eternal life. And yet, in these moments of life, in these matters, sometimes small, we seem to lose all perspective of who he really is, what he's able to do for us, what he is to us. The reality is, Jesus is able to do far abundantly more than we think or imagine. So the reality is, we need to be careful not to listen to the voices around us that try to convince us that Jesus is not sufficient for what we need. That was Jesus' response to his disciples. So first we see his response to the Pharisees, and he says, no sign will be given to you. And then in the boat, when he responds to his disciples, they're like, guys, didn't you get it? Don't you not understand yet? 
I am who I am. Don't let them convince you otherwise. And then there's a third response, or we could even say a reaction. And we see this in verses 22 through 26. And this is a response to the people that we see in Bethsaida. So starting at verse 22, we read, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man. We just saw the healing of a blind man just recently, and here it is again. And begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, let's be honest. This is a strange story here. Throughout this entire gospel, we've seen that sometimes simply touching someone, they were healed. Sometimes simply speaking to someone, they would be healed. What is happening in this situation? A strange situation that we aren't sure what to make of. What's happening here? Was Jesus not able able enough to heal this man with one touch like he had the other blind man? I hope you, like me, could be honest and say, yeah, I, I, I just don't get this. But by the goodness of God, God provides us with much wiser men who understand the scriptures more thoroughly and more widely. And so tapping into the world of commentators and theologians, I think... I've been able to make sense of this story and how it connects to what we've already looked at in Jesus' previous two responses. You see, it is generally agreed that the, Jesus, the reason excuse me, Jesus had to redo this miracle, if you will, was not because he failed to do it right the first time or that he didn't use enough of his supernatural strength to do it the first time. Jesus didn't step by and go, whoops, right? That is not what's happening here. I think it'll help us to understand that the reason Jesus did this and it was on purpose is because I believe from what I have learned that Jesus is using this real-life situation as a spiritual metaphor. Follow along on this. You see, we already know that throughout the Scriptures, we see spiritual metaphors used all the time. Real-life situations to help us understand the spiritual truth. Think of this. If you know your Bible and you go all the way back, for example, to Numbers 21, 
Here we have this crazy story where Israel, the people of Israel in the desert demonstrate a lack of faith and are accusing God and Moses of bringing them out in the desert to die. Right, The God who set them free from Egypt has brought us out in the wilderness to die. So what's God's response to this? God sends them venomous serpents into their camp, killing people when they're bitten by these serpents. But God doesn't leave it there. God has Moses build a replica. Sorry, am I doing? God had them build a replica serpent and put it on a pole so that if anyone looked upon that snake, they would live. We hear that story, we're like, what is that all about? This story, a real situation, God allowed to happen to use as a spiritual metaphor to teach us certain truths. And I'll give you a couple as an example. The first one in the story of the serpents was that, number one, sin kills. Sin kills. Number two, God saves through faith. There wasn't anything you could do. You just look up at the serpent on the pole and you'd be saved. It was an act of faith. God saves by faith. Thirdly, in the future, God would send someone to save us from our sin by him becoming sin for us. Those are the spiritual truths that we learn from the spiritual metaphor of that real life story. So now let's reel that back in, back into the story of Mark here. And what does the story of the two-stage healing process of this blind man serve to teach us as a spiritual metaphor? I believe it's this. Jesus is the one who gives sight. Sight, or sorry, blindness in Scripture is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. And sight in Scripture is a metaphor for spiritual understanding, understanding the things of God. Blindness is a metaphor for not understanding the things of God. And so the story of the two-stage healing highlights the state of the Pharisees and the disciples in the boat. Because you see, previously, or if you look over in Matthew 15, verse 14, in that passage, Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides. They don't understand God or the things of God. And that is why they denied who Jesus was. And then he asks his disciples in the boat, do you not yet understand? They believed who he was, but they didn't seem to fully understand. So the answer to the question directed at the disciples in the boat is this, we see, but not clearly. We understand in part, but not fully. 
See, they believed who he was, but they didn't fully get it yet. Not fully. And here's what we need to understand. They wouldn't fully understand until his resurrection from the dead. Let me show this to you. In Luke 24, verses 44, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, and he's been resurrected, and they've seen, they've seen the scar on his side. They see, again, sorry. They see the holes in his hands. Listen to what Luke 24, 44 says. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's referring to before he was crucified. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen, listen, here it is, verse 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See? Verse 46, and he said to them, Thus is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the aha moment for the disciples. Think back to when they're in the boat. They're like, oh, what's the right answer, guys? Right? Do we understand? Be honest. Lord, we, un we understand part, but obviously we're not getting it fully. Right? And why was it? Because Jesus hadn't opened their eyes to fully understand yet. As we see here, when they see this, they're like, now we get it. So you see, when we look at this third story, when we look at this blind man, it was a picture, if you will, of the disciples. Jesus had taken these disciples who, like the rest of Israel, were blind to who Jesus was. And Jesus had led them by the hand out of a religious system that did not understand who Jesus was or what he came to do. And having led them out of that religious system, he chose to give them sight or understanding, if you will. He opened their eyes so that they might understand, see and understand. And he did it in proportion as time went on. What they needed at the time. But they didn't fully understand. Their eyes wouldn't be fully open to the reality of all that Jesus was for them until after his resurrection. Folks, the question for you and for me today is the same. Do we not yet understand? And perhaps what our answer ought to be is, I understand in part, Lord, I believe, but I do not yet understand everything you are for me and to me. But there is something that you and I can do differently than the disciples. 
That is, ask. They didn't ask. Jesus invites us to come and to ask. We're told in James 1 that if we come and we ask for wisdom, for knowledge, that he will not turn us away. So let us ask, Lord, help me to know you fully. Open my eyes that I might fully see so that we might fully trust him. Pray with me. Father, this morning again, The reality is, until you open our eyes, we are like the Pharisees who do not believe and even try to refute who you are. But then you, as we see in the story of the blind man, you, you take people by the hand and you lead them out of a, a false belief system, a false religious system. And you open our eyes so that we might behold who you really are. That you are the Son of God who came and gave his life for us. Because there is no other way by which we can come into your presence. There is no other way in which we can be reconciled to you. There is no other way for our sins to be forgiven. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, there are many people here today who, who probably say, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, but I don't yet fully understand all that you are for me and to me. Would you, help, would you help us to understand that, Lord? Would you open our eyes that we might see? And Father, maybe there are those here today who have actually never trusted in Jesus Christ. Lord, you tell us in your word that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Lord, open our eyes to see that and to understand that. That the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to be acceptable to you, the only way to come into your presence under your grace is through Jesus Christ who gave himself for us on the cross, who became sin for us by taking my sin upon himself so that his righteousness might be accredited to me so that when I stand before you on that great day, Lord, and you look at me and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, it won't be because I had it all together. It was because of my faith in Christ, whose righteousness was imputed to me. Give us eyes to see, Lord. And even in this season, Lord, again, even thinking of the people that are hurting right now, be for them 
what you are, Lord. Be their peace. Be their comfort. Be their strength. Provide for them what they need in this season. In Jesus' name.